Due to the graphic nature of this haunted place, listener discretion is advised. This episode includes descriptions of infanticide, child death, and suicide. We advise extreme caution for children under 13. Henrietta clutched the edges of a steaming casserole as she approached the old Arnold estate. At seven months pregnant, she could easily rest the bottom of the dish on her belly, but the growing bump was starting to slow her down. She huffed and puffed as she made her way up the house's driveway, determined to give her new neighbors a proper welcome. The farmhouse ahead was a delightful colonial with wood siding and brick chimneys. Acres of sprawling green land stretched out behind it, Henrietta's own home was a new build, and she'd always been jealous of houses with a little history, though this one's history was darker than most. She wondered if the new neighbors had heard about the rumors. Apparently, the original owner of the old Arnold estate was a witch, or something scary like that. Henrietta didn't really believe it, though. The old house was just too adorable. She'd tell the neighbors she thought so, to put their minds at ease. As Henrietta got to the house's front step, she was surprised to see the front door was ajar. She called out, but there was no answer. She decided there was no harm in peeking inside. She'd always been curious about the place. With a tentative hello, Henrietta stepped inside. She waited for some sign of her new neighbors but it was silent. Henrietta wrinkled her nose at a sudden foul stench. It smelled like meat left out too long. She lifted the foil on the casserole and sniffed, but it didn't seem like it was the cause of the smell. The front door slammed shut, and Henrietta spun around, startled. A woman stood behind her, her hand pressed against the door protectively. Henrietta started to introduce herself, but stopped. This didn't look like the smiling new neighbor she had seen moving in a few days ago. The woman's head was tilted to the side, like it was broken. Bloodshot eyes peered through matted hair. She whispered hoarsely, telling Henrietta not to worry. She didn't need her. She needed what Henrietta carried inside of her. And then, she pulled a long, sharp knitting needle from the folds of her skirt. Welcome to Haunted Places, a Spotify original from Parcast. I'm Greg Polson. Every Thursday, I take you to the scariest, eeriest, most haunted, real places on Earth. You can find all episodes of Haunted Places and all other Spotify originals from Parcast for free on Spotify or wherever you listen to podcasts. And every Tuesday, make sure to check out Urban Legends. These special episodes of Haunted Places are available exclusively on Spotify. Every week, we visit a different spooky location across the globe, from the castles of old Europe to the pyramids of Egypt. But for the month of May, we'll be featuring haunted places that not only exist in the real world, but also on the silver screen. Because we'll be telling the true stories behind the terrifying films of The Conjuring franchise in our four-part series, Behind The Conjuring. 
These episodes will explore the haunted places investigated by the famous paranormal research duo, Ed and Lorraine Warren. Each week, we'll focus on a different haunting case covered by the Warrens and learn the history behind the specters they encountered. So today, join me on a supernatural journey to the old Arnold Estate, the home which inspired the first film in the horror series, and discover why, to this day, it's haunted. Coming up, we'll visit a house where the walls don't just talk, they scream. Off a quiet street, under the shade of Rhode Island's willow trees, is one of the most haunted structures in the country. The old Arnold Estate is a picturesque, wood-paneled colonial, built in 1736 on 200 acres of land. This relic of quaint New England has become notorious for the restless spirits that haunt its halls. Much of that fame is due to the movie that it inspired, The Conjuring. But prior to the film's 2013 release, the old Arnold estate was known as the home that caught the eye of famed paranormal investigators, Ed and Lorraine Warren. The Warrens founded the New England Society for Psychic Research and were well known in the area. Ed, who passed away in 2006, was the pair's demonologist while Lorraine, who died in 2019, was the medium. It's said the Warrens investigated over 10,000 hauntings, both in the United States and abroad, and the old Arnold estate was one of their most formidable. Ed and Lorraine were called in to investigate the property in 1973, two years after Carolyn and Roger Perrin moved into the house with their five daughters. The Perrin family had relocated from Connecticut hoping to find a home that could contain their large family. The old Arnold estate was perfect, with its 14 bedrooms and sprawling acreage. What they didn't realize was that the estate was already occupied by the dead. Lenore hummed a lullaby to her baby daughter but her heart wasn't in it. She felt depleted, stretched thin. Ever since she came of age, Lenore had been the most desirable woman in town. Everywhere she went, she turned heads. But as soon as Mary was born, no one looked at her or paid any attention. Lenore loved her child, but sometimes it felt like Mary had taken a part of her when she came into the world, the part that Lenore loved the most her youth. She eyed Mary's soft cheek. At one time, her skin had been that soft and supple, but stress and months of sleepless nights had taken their toll. Her beautiful hair was now dull and lifeless, and her eyes had grown dark and hollowed. It was as if she'd seemingly turned into an old maid overnight. Lenore never thought she'd care about aging. It's easy not to when you take your beauty for granted. But when you become invisible, you suddenly do care. Everyone becomes a competitor, even Lenore's own baby. Lenore shook her head abruptly. She despised herself for thinking such things. She heard the plow cart clattering outside and felt a trill of excitement. She'd been waiting for her husband Thomas to start work on the field because she was about to do something she did not want him to see. 
that she didn't want anyone to see. Lenore hurried into the bedroom and pulled a knitting bag out from under the bed. She rustled inside, shoving past needles and spools of yarn to find a canvas satchel buried at the bottom. She gently unwrapped it, revealing two red candlesticks and a small scrap of paper. It was from the town's midwife. The midwife had delivered Mary and was the first to tell Lenore that her life would change. She said it at their last appointment like it was a good thing, but Lenore felt a surge of panic at her words. She'd snapped back at the midwife that she liked her life the way it was. The midwife had stared at Lenore for a long time before offering her a solution. All Lenore had to do was light some candles, say an incantation, and go to sleep. When she woke, she'd be back to the beautiful woman she was before Mary arrived. Not just the lady of the house, the lady of the entire village. Lenore eagerly lit the red candles and read the incantation written on the paper aloud. The words weren't in English, and they felt odd in her mouth, like they were from another time. But as she spoke, she felt warm. Her cheeks flushed, and an excited energy spread through her, making her heart thunder and her brow sweat. A cold breeze tickled the back of Lenore's neck. She shivered as her skin broke out in goosebumps. Then, a soft whisper floated around her. Lenore turned around, but there was no one in the room. The voice said it was glad she had called and it was eager to help. Lenore felt foggy. She didn't know who was speaking, but she was relieved all the same. She'd awakened a helper, and this helper was going to make it all better. Lenore felt the warmness spread to her hand, guiding her to one of her knitting needles. Her fingers curled around it. She lifted it up to the light, admiring it. It was so shiny, sharp. It was a tool to create things, but also to undo them. Her grip tightened around it as the voice told her to go find Mary. Lenore frowned. Why would she need Mary? But she felt an unseen force tug gently on her arm, leading her from the room. Before she knew it, she was standing in front of Mary's cradle. The voice in her ear grew complimenting Mary's beautiful lips, her unblemished skin. Lenora smiled. Mary was beautiful, but the voice hardened when it asked Lenore if she regretted giving all her perfections to her child. Lenora's heart sank. Yes, she did regret it. The voice gently told her that Lenore's blood ran through Mary's veins. It was Lenore who had given away all that made Mary special, and Lenore could take it back. Lenore felt the hand holding the needle move toward Mary's cradle. The baby awoke with a cry, but Lenore barely heard her over the whispering voice. It had grown louder now. Just a prick, the voice told her, just to let out the goodness so Lenore could finally take it back. Lenore let her hand be guided. It was easy, allowing a helper to take control. Mary's wails grew louder, more frantic. Then, Lenore's hand shot forward. Suddenly, the room fell silent. Lenore stared into the cradle, 
her eyes slowly taking in its contents. But before anything else, her mind registered the smell. It was wet, the scent of iron. Then she saw the blood, sickly red and vibrant against the crib's white cotton sheets. Lenore finally recognized Mary, motionless, bleeding. Lenore screamed and backed away from the cradle. No, she hadn't done that. But she had. Her stomach heaved. She yelled in panic for the helper, but the voice was silent. The fog was gone. The cruel, blinding horror of clarity had returned, and she wished that it hadn't. Lenore staggered from the room and down the stairs. She burst into the yard, the sunlight making her wince. She looked around in confusion, disoriented from the grief ripping her apart. Then she saw the tree. Her heart ached with rage. The spell hadn't worked. Whatever evil she'd called into being hadn't cured her of aging. It had made living unbearable. She grabbed a coil of rope from the barn and climbed up the trunk. Once she was high enough, she slung one end of the rope around a thick branch and the other in a loop around her neck. Its rough fibers scratched against her skin. That's when it came back. The familiar cold breeze tickled her flesh, and that soft whisper spoke in her ear. It told Lenore that she was wrong. The spell hadn't failed. It just wasn't finished yet. Lenore's tearful face broke into a relieved smile. She looked down toward the ground. Of course, the only way to really stop growing old was to die. The voice gently told Lenore not to worry. She was doing the right thing. Death wasn't the end, not even close. And so, Lenore leapt from the tree. The land that the old Arnold estate sits on was deeded to a family of early colonists, the Richardsons, in the late 1600s. Shortly after, it was passed through marriage to the Arnold family, who resided there for eight generations. But of the estate's many occupants, the most notorious was a woman named Bathsheba Thayer Sherman. Bathsheba's identity came to Lorraine in a vision in 1973 as they investigated the old Arnold estate. Then, it seems that through their research, the Warrens matched Bathsheba's full name to one listed at the local cemetery. Bathsheba was said to live in the home in the latter half of the 1800s, and according to the Warrens, she was a devil-worshipping witch. They claim that she killed her own child with a knitting needle as a sacrifice to the devil for eternal beauty. Bathsheba was never imprisoned, however, in fact, she died as an old woman in the late 1800s. There aren't enough records to confirm her dark history, but it is possible that the legend was conflated with the events of a different death, a suicide by a woman named Mrs. John Arnold, who was said to have hung herself in the attic of another local home. The rumors about Bathsheba's satanic history may have begun with Ed and Lorraine Warren in 1973, but they were cemented decades later with the 2013 release of the original Conjuring film. And today, Bathsheba has become the famed identity of the old Arnold Estate's most malicious spirit. 
We may never know if Bathsheba really was a devil worshipper or simply a tragic figure whose legend turned into a spectral demon. But regardless of who she was in life or in death, her ghost became one of the most corrosive evils the Warrens had ever encountered. Coming up, we get to work cleaning a haunted house. Wayne Simmons spent 27 years undercover for the CIA. When he retired from spy work, he got a big break. Terrorism analyst on Fox News. Then he met Kent Clisby. So I'm a real CIA guy. This is total nonsense. I'm Alex French, and I'm here to figure out who's telling the truth. Was Wayne Simmons a spy, or was he nothing but a con man? Imposters is a Spotify original from Parcast and premieres Monday, May 3rd. Follow and listen exclusively on Spotify. Now back to the story. The parents were a family of seven who moved on to the old Arnold estate in 1971 and lived there for nine years, some of the strangest years of their lives. Andrea Perrin, the eldest of the family's five daughters, wrote a series of books about the experience. Andrea claimed that within her first few minutes of stepping inside the house, she saw an apparition of a man. It would be the first of countless supernatural encounters the family would have there. For the next few years, the parents were plagued by relatively harmless, though unsettling oddities, like levitating beds, mysterious apparitions, and slamming doors. As Andrea points out, there was no single culprit for all the bumps in the night, there were so many ghosts. But when the Warrens arrived and told the family about Bathsheba, the parents realized that one of the home's resident spirits was far worse than the others. Susan wheeled a mop bucket into the kitchen, accidentally hitting the doorframe. A torrent of water sloshed over its rim, drenching her feet. Susan swore aloud, then set the bucket down next to a mop and broom that leaned against the kitchen wall. She heard a giggle and turned to see her six-year-old son, Henry, watching her from a pile of old toys in the middle of the living room. His vibrant orange-striped shirt stood out against the house's dinginess. Susan sighed. He was supposed to be helping her clean the farmhouse, not playing with its old junk. She watched him cry, tally-ho, and rammed two toys together, she felt her scowl curl into a smile. She wasn't about to spoil his fun. Susan owned a cleaning business, and she'd been hired by the home's new owners to spruce the place up before they moved in the next day. The family had five kids, all girls, so it made sense they wouldn't want to deal with cleaning on top of moving their big family. But Susan wasn't exactly thrilled to be at the old Arnold estate. The cobwebs were virtually endless, and the decrepit wallpaper was impossible to clean. But also, it was haunted. Satanists and suicides and all that. Susan believed in all that stuff, but she wasn't scared of it. What was worrying her was the blizzard outside. It was the biggest one they'd had since 1965. That storm had nearly buried the town six years before. And if this one kept up, Susan was sure the family would have to postpone their move. Henry was having the time of his life throwing his toys around. Susan smiled fondly at her little boy. Henry's dad had died when he was born, 
and Susan had been saddled with a cleaning business and a newborn baby. When she was young, it might have crushed her, but there was something about being Henry's mom that made her stronger than she ever thought possible. Maybe that's why being in a spooky house didn't bother her. Henry gave her strength. She jumped as a gust of wind shook the window pane. The storm was picking up, meaning she needed to pick up her pace. They lived just down the street, but with the way the snow was coming down, they could have trouble making it home. She had better get a move on. Susan reached for her broom, but her hand grabbed at air. The broom was gone. Susan stared at the spot in confusion. She was sure it had been right next to the mop. A scraping noise from upstairs made her flinch. It sounded like someone was sweeping. A chill ran through her. There shouldn't be anyone else in the house. She told Henry to stay put. Then she stormed up the stairs, taking two at a time. She wanted whoever it was to know she was coming. She reached the top of the landing and threw open the first door. But the room was empty. She did the same to the next room, then the next. But when she flung open the door and flicked on the light in the bedroom at the end of the hallway, she froze. This one wasn't empty. Her broom lay in the middle of the floor. Dust was swirling in the air, like it had been kicked up. Susan's mind churned. How did the broom get there? Before she could come up with an answer, the room was plunged into darkness. A spike of anxiety ran through her before she realized the storm must have knocked the power out. Susan shivered, then snatched up her broom. It was time to leave. She had a lot left to do, but she couldn't exactly work in the dark. She doubted the family would get in tomorrow with the snow. She'd come back in the morning. The thought filled her with relief. The broom had unnerved her more than she cared to admit. A loud clank echoed through the empty house, followed by the sound of splashing water. Susan groaned. That definitely sounded like the mop bucket tipping over. If Henry had gotten himself wet, he'd be freezing on their walk home. She hurried downstairs. When she reached the living room, Henry was right where she left him. But he wasn't playing with the toys. He was staring into the kitchen, where a puddle of water seeped out from the overturned mop bucket. Susan scolded him, but he replied that he hadn't done it. Susan rolled her eyes and asked him who had. His little hand rose into the air to point at Susan. She frowned. Was he saying he thought she'd done it? But then she realized he wasn't pointing at her. He was pointing behind her. Before Susan could turn, a pungent smell hit her nostrils, like rotting, spoiled meat. Suddenly, an electric pain shot through her scalp, and her head jerked backwards. She flailed her arms, frantically trying to dislodge whatever had grabbed her. Then, she felt two hands shove her toward the front door. Susan slammed against the wood and stumbled before whipping around, ready to fight her attacker. In the dim room, she could make out of the bottom of the stairs a woman. She was shaped so oddly, Susan thought it was a trick of the darkness. 
Then she realized the woman's head was bent so far to one side that her ear rested on her shoulder. A frantic, indecipherable whispering filled the air, making Susan's heart race. Then the figure slowly pulled her long, dark hair to the side, like she was parting a curtain. Susan saw the woman's face and gagged. Her skin was gray, and her mouth was a dark hole that she opened wide in a mournful howl. The indecipherable whispers clarified, and Susan realized the voice was talking about Henry. It said he was perfect. Susan looked at Henry in a panic, wondering what that meant. Perfect for what? Susan moved toward him, but froze in terror when the woman howled again. She slowly stepped closer to Susan. Then she lashed out a grayish hand to grab Susan's wrist. The woman's bloodshot eyes bored into hers. The woman said that Susan had to leave because there wasn't enough of the child for both of them. And then she shoved Susan as hard as she could. Susan stumbled back, expecting to hit the front door again. But instead, a massive shock of cold hit her. She was standing outside the house. The wind whipped her hair and clothes with a burning chill. Then the front door slammed in her face. Susan lunged for the door handle, but it wouldn't open. Then she screamed, pounding at the door as the freezing wind tore at her exposed skin. Henry was still inside. Susan leapt into the snow, gasping as the icy cold stung her calves. She waded through it until she got to the window beside the door. It was locked too. She raised a fist, ready to break the pane. But before she moved, she saw Henry. He was lying in the middle of the living room, still surrounded by toys. His orange-striped shirt was as bright as ever, but his wide-eyed, vacant expression wasn't the playful Henry that she knew. And the thin, shiny knitting needle that pierced his throat hadn't been there before. It took her a full minute to realize Henry was dead. And when she did, the storm was so loud Susan couldn't hear her own scream. The parents moved into their new home at the old Arnold estate in the middle of a blizzard. Though they may have found respite from the brutal storm outside, what they walked into was far worse. Over the next nine years that the family lived in the house, each person had an encounter with at least one of the home's restless spirits. But Carolyn, the parents' matriarch, had experiences far more chilling than anyone in her family. Carolyn was pinched by an invisible force, hit by flying objects, and stabbed in the leg with what could have been a knitting needle. In 1977, she told the Providence Journal that one night, she woke up to find a woman in an old gray dress standing by her bed, telling her to get out. It's thought that since Carolyn refused to leave the home, Bathsheba's spirit grew more aggressive. The Conjuring film portrays Carolyn reaching out to Ed and Lorraine for help. But according to Andrea Perrin, the Warrens were alerted to the home's existence not by the Perrin family, but by a Rhode Island paranormal group. 
Andrea describes how Lorraine and Ed simply appeared at their door one day, inquiring about the home's hauntings. And as soon as Lorraine entered the house, she could sense an evil presence, which the Warrens later identified as Bathsheba. But unfortunately, the Warrens didn't drive Bathsheba out. They only made her angry. Coming up, an only child gets a playmate. Now back to the story. Bathsheba wasn't the only ghost the parent family encountered at the old Arnold estate. According to Andrea, the family believed that the spirits who haunted the house were all people who had died there. Three particularly disturbing deaths at the estate were Prudence Arnold, an 11-year-old girl who was raped and killed by a farmhand, and two other members of the Arnold family who hung themselves. However, later reports and research into historic archives cast doubt on these claims, and the true origins of the estate's many ghosts remains a mystery. And so, with little information on the spirit's true identities, Andrea and her sisters named the apparitions themselves. There was Manny, a man with a crooked smile who'd watched them play from a corner of their rooms, and Oliver, a boy who only appeared to April, Andrea's younger sister. But while the parent daughters mostly adapted to life with the dead, Carolyn was reportedly tormented by Bathsheba for years. However, simply moving out would be impossible. A precarious financial situation prevented the parents from buying a new home without selling the one they were in, and the house did not seem sellable. So Carolyn was faced with a choice. She could stay and fight Bathsheba, or she could flee herself. But for Carolyn, leaving wasn't an option. For if she left, she couldn't protect her children. Tammy peered through the crack in the closet door, her body tense. The hall light just outside sent a beam into the dark space illuminating a flurry of dust. The farmhouse's air was thick with it. It made everything feel heavier than the last place they'd lived, like the dust weighed them all down. Tammy spied Henry's orange-striped shirt passing by the closet and flung the door open with a scream. Henry shrieked, sending Tammy into a laughing fit. She loved tormenting Henry. He was younger than her, only six to her ten, but he was the only local kid she'd met since moving in a few weeks ago. Tammy was an only child, so it was like having a little brother. Once Tammy's laughter died and she caught her breath, she asked if Henry wanted to play outside, but Henry shook his head. Tammy sighed. He never wanted to go outside. She was about to ask why when she heard her dad, David, yelling. His footsteps sounded mad as he thundered down the stairs. She knew what this was about. She and Henry had been in the attic. She wasn't really supposed to go up there. It had been one of her mom's rules. Tammy's mom had left a few days ago, and Tammy knew it was because of her. She was always getting yelled at when she climbed trees in the yard or placed fun booby traps in doorways. But it had gotten worse ever since they moved in. She'd overheard her parents yelling. Tammy's mom said the house was dangerous. Her dad had said something about money and that they were stuck there. And then her mom had said something that made Tammy's heart break. 
She'd said she could handle Tammy in a normal house, but here, it was too much. Tammy was too much. She left the next day. Once she left, it seemed like her mom's paranoia had now infected her dad. He'd been on Tammy's case all week about safety. Don't go in the attic. Don't go in the basement. Stay in your room at night. Keep the lights on. David strode into the room and, as expected, asked if she'd been in the attic again. Tammy smirked and blamed it on Henry. David frowned and asked Tammy who she was talking about. Annoyed, Tammy pointed to Henry, but saw that he wasn't there anymore. He must have snuck out without saying his usual tally-ho. David told Tammy to get ready for bed and walked out of the room, but she wasn't paying attention. She stared at the place where Henry had disappeared. It was strange she hadn't heard him leave. Tammy didn't sleep well that night. She tossed and turned, thinking about her mom, wondering when or if she'd be back. She was just starting to doze when her bed lurched violently. She sat up, rubbing the sleep from her eyes. There was a figure watching her from the shadows. Tammy froze. Just then, a little boy stepped from the darkness. At the sound of his giggle, Tammy relaxed again. It was just Henry. But it was weird he was here now. Maybe he hadn't left today after all. He just hid. Before she could ask, he yelled, Tally-ho, and took off. She heard him stomp down the stairs. Tammy hopped out of bed and hurried after him. When she got to the living room, she saw the basement door was open. She was sure Henry was hiding down there, probably ready to get her back for scaring him today. She called to him, telling him she wasn't in the mood for hide-and-seek. But there was no answer. She sighed and descended the basement steps. A musty, rotten stench choked her. It smelled terrible down there. It was really cold, too. But it was an odd kind of cold. Numbing, like a suit of needles pressing around her entire body. She called out for Henry again, but heard nothing. Tammy's eyes flew to a closet door at the far end of the basement. She was sure she'd just seen it move. She rolled her eyes. Henry was terrible at this game. She strode across the basement's dirt floor and swung open the closet. Game over. But it wasn't Henry in the closet. It was a woman. Her head was bent to the side, exposing a milky white neck that looked like it had broken bones poking beneath the skin. Matted dark hair hung over her head, hiding her face. Suddenly, a flurry of whispers filled the basement. Tammy backed away fear numbing her even more than the cold had. She stammered, asking where Henry was. But the woman didn't say anything. Instead, she reached out slowly and touched Tammy's cheek. She whispered that she was so happy Tammy's mother left them alone. There just wasn't enough of Tammy to go around. Something silver flashed in the woman's hand. A sewing needle. She flung it toward Tammy's neck, but the little girl jumped back and sprinted toward the stairs. As she ran, 
tears clouded her vision. The meaning of the woman's words bounced around in her head. Had her mother known this thing was here? If she had, she'd left Tammy anyway. She'd abandoned her instead of protecting her. Tammy reached the stairs. Her escape was in sight. But Henry suddenly jumped out at her from behind the water heater and yelled, Tally-ho! Tammy screamed, nearly losing her balance. The poor kid thought they were still playing. Tammy looked over her shoulder. The woman's bizarre silhouette was slowly approaching. Tammy grabbed Henry's hand and pulled him with her. He felt colder than normal. He asked her what she was running from. Frantic, Tammy told him there was a woman. They had to hurry, now. Henry looked confused and told Tammy that the woman takes care of him. Tammy tensed. She looked him up and down, really taking him in. And for the first time, she noticed there were two small puncture wounds on either side of Henry's neck. Like something had been run through his throat. A needle. Tammy dropped his hand, but suddenly realized why her dad hadn't seen Henry. Because he wasn't really there. When Tammy lunged for the stairs, she felt pain shoot through her calf. She looked down in horror to find the needle sticking out of it. The woman gripped its other end, pushing the needle further into her leg with a grotesque smile. Henry frowned at this. He asked the woman what she was doing and grabbed her hand. The woman released her grip from the needle for just a moment to push Henry away. But Tammy didn't waste any time. She ran up the stairs and limped to the front door. As she crossed its threshold, her mother's words echoed in her mind. This house is dangerous. According to Andrea Perrin, the cellar of the old Arnold estate is a hot spot for the paranormal. And when Ed and Lorraine Warren visited the house in 1973, they reportedly warned the children to avoid the area. But the Warrens' presence there didn't improve things for the parent family. It only made it much, much worse. It began when Ed and Lorraine held a seance in the home in an attempt to drive Bathsheba away. According to Andrea, however, this did the exact opposite. During the seance, the Warrens unwittingly invited a spirit in that attacked Carolyn. Andrea describes her mother levitating and contorting into a ball. After this, Roger Perrin demanded that the Warrens leave. Being sent home was a strange relief for Ed and Lorraine. Lorraine said in an interview later that the house was so negative, it drained you. And unfortunately, that's exactly what happened to Carolyn. After the Warrens left, Carolyn withered away. According to some stories, she lost weight, dressed in vintage clothing, and spoke in archaic language. It was as if Bathsheba was slowly feeding on her vitality and taking over. Finally, in 1980, the parents were able to sell the home and move to Georgia. While Carolyn seemed to improve after relocating, Andrea claims that the spirits never truly left them. The house has changed hands at least twice since the parents left. And as of 2019, the state now has owners better suited for its peculiarities. Corey and Jennifer Heinzen are amateur ghost hunters who bought the estate because of its history. 
and now run tours of the property. Today, the Heinzens claim they hear strange knocks and disembodied voices at all hours and see odd flashing lights. But when speaking to a local journalist, Corey claimed he didn't feel anything evil in the home. In his words, it's just very busy. Bathsheba was never successfully vanquished by the Warrens, but it seems that for now, she's been quiet. It's possible the angry spirit decided to rest after an exhausting nine years tormenting the parents. Maybe Carolyn's ability to put her body in between the evil presence and her children finally forced Bathsheba to move on. The power of a mother's love can be an impenetrable shield, stronger than even a furious spirit. Thanks again for tuning into Haunted Places. We'll be back on Thursday with our second episode in our season on Behind the Conjuring. And don't forget to come back on Tuesday for our Urban Legends series, available only on Spotify. You can find more episodes of Haunted Places and all other Spotify originals from ParCast for free on Spotify. I'll see you next time. Haunted Places is a Spotify original from ParCast. Executive producers include Max and Ron Cutler, Sound design by Kenny Hobbs, with production assistance by Ron Shapiro, Trent Williamson, Carly Madden, and Isabella Way. This episode of Haunted Places was written by Kate Murdoch, with writing assistance by Alex Garland, fact-checking by Claire Cronin, and research by Adriana Gomez. I'm Greg Polson.